Welcome to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus, a production of New Mexico PBS. This is for the show airing Friday, July 3rd, 2020. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that everyone is ready to have a safe and a happy 4th of July weekend. And of course, Follow all the social distancing and other safety measures we need to keep COVID-19 at bay as much as possible here in New Mexico. Really crucial right now as we've seen cases start to climb again here in New Mexico. This week, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham held a press conference and talked about some of the surge that we're seeing right now and announced that she was basically putting any more reopening in the state as far as businesses and other things go on hold to see if we can turn the tide here. So we're expecting new updates in the following couple weeks. The extension of the public health order goes through the middle of the month. So we will see how things go, especially concerning uh, Donya Anna County is seeing a pretty big increase in cases. And of course, as we've talked about a lot on the show, neighboring states like Texas are more open and loose in terms of their restrictions than we are. So there's a growing concern there that continues on. And we wanted to do something a little different for this holiday show. If you guys are like us, we've had a lot of conversations here about just how much thoughts and opinions, the science, everything has changed over the course of the last three plus months since COVID-19 really uh, popped up here in New Mexico and this public health emergency started. And so we wanted to look back on a little bit of some of that evolution of thoughts and and uh, responses and and just how we've changed our thoughts on this virus as the weeks have gone on. So we're going to start this week with a line opinion panel from back on March 13th, right at the beginning of the pandemic here in New Mexico, as the state uh, looked to respond to this, to get testing ramped up, to protect hospital capacities so that we wouldn't get overrun, to flatten the curve. That was something we heard a lot. We're still dealing with But uh, here now is a segment of the line from back at the beginning of the pandemic. Again, this was back on March 13th. Here's host Gene Grant. Well, we knew we couldn't avoid it forever. New Mexico reported its first cases of COVID-19 this week. The governor's message, be a state that is prepared, not panicked. Did it hit home and is it realistic? Our line opinion panel has agreed to read up on the issues and come in prepared to tackle COVID-19 and all of our topics. Merritt Allen is here. She's the owner of Vox Optima Public Relations. Dan McKay, a political reporter with the Albuquerque Journal, joins us. The same title fits Andy Lyman. His title also fits the New Mexico Political Report. And rounding out the table is attorney in line regular Sophie Martin. Welcome to you all. Now, Sophie, mm-hmm. this is a fairly measured performance by the governor. Uh, did the governor give the impression that the state is prepared and not panicked, as she said? What was your takeaway? How should folks take away her um, press uh, that, I think that's a good question. I think, and I think frankly, <clears throat> it depends on who you ask, because right. there is a pretty wide range of opinions at this point as to whether COVID-19 is actually a thing. It's a thing. Just if I can put that out there, Um, how concerned people should be, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I think for state government, um, which is, you know, a huge part of our our workforce, frankly, and and, uh, a community that is most immediately impacted as as some people are now working from home, they're making changes we're hearing Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the size of groups that can gather within the state government context. The the court system has said that they want to keep the size, for instance, of jury pools quite small in order to reduce possible transmission. I mean, we see various state government departments stepping forward. For the person who works for a fast food restaurant, who is uh, involved in the service industry in some way, who may not have the opportunity to shift how they work, where they work, et cetera, um, I think that this is probably both alarming and something they feel they can't do a lot about. Right. We're all doing our bit and, you know, viewers might notice we're sitting here with water bottles, guys, instead of our usual, yes, you know, to make school and focus cups because we're, we're taking care in our own way ourselves as best we can. And Dan, interestingly, when you watch the governor, she came out and opened with a cleaning of her hands with some, you know, sanitizer and, you know, you always want to demonstrate, and, you know, show, don't tell, as they say in screenwriting, and, and she did that quite well. 
But there's a lot of stuff out there on Facebook when you see a lot of the misinformation, a lot of the misunderstandings, probably a better word, about this. How far can government get about giving these kind of messages out there? A lot of folks are not as news houndy as we all are in hanging on these things. So it's a, it's a tough task. Yeah, it, it seems like the, the news is kind of rippling through different orbits. It's mm -hmm. um, you know now hitting sports with the suspension of the NBA. Um, uh, Tom Hanks's positive test is going to get a lot of attention. So that was um, huge, wasn't it? That really yeah, went off across the country. You're right. I mean, it? it's difficult when someone is an elected official and everything they say is kind of interpreted through these partisan prisms. Right. Um, you know, when the governor faces, as as Sophie mentioned, um, you know, a balance between uh, trying to get people to take this seriously, but also not, you know, promoting panic. Mm -hmm. You know, and Andy, one of her messages, I think, maybe a little underplayed, considering what's going on in the public out there, is this, this aspect of, of, of hoarding and buying to excess toilet paper, water, whatever the case may be. That is a hard thing to get across to people, to tell them, no, don't buy what you think should be safe or enough. You, you see what I mean? That's a very hard thing to do. We're going to have to all sort of self-police each other in a way to yeah, get through I think, this. I think, uh like what has been addressed so far is, is social media has a big impact in this where mm -hmm. um, we, we sort of as, as humans trust our friends on social media so if somebody says oh no the CDC said we should buy all this then we're like oh okay right um, but there's no follow-up questions of well why are we doing this you know and mm -hmm. and I think there's been an interesting uh, sort of thread uh, on social media of remember that other people need to wash their hands too so mm -hmm. don't don't take it away from everybody else that's right that's right um, and of course just it creates that a snowball effect where they see, oh, the shelves are empty, I better get right to my grocery store That's so right. I can just get my regular things, mm -hmm. right, even if I'm not going to get quarantined. That's so. right. And you think about the reasons for toilet paper shortages, there's no reason <laughs> when you think about it, but this is how folks work. Not laughing at anybody who has done this, I'm just saying this is, this is part of the big, greater problem. The telecommuting part, let's talk about that. The governor made mention of that. She wants non-essential workers. We're still not quite clear what that constitutes, non-essential state workers. Do not go out of state travels limited and telecommuting. Easier said than done though, isn't it? We're still a state that doesn't have exactly wall-to-wall -wall internet connect, high-speed internet connectivity Absolutely. every corner of the state. It's yeah, that, and that's, that's, that is a real challenge, and that's mm -hmm. something I've seen. Um, my company has a lot of staff in DC, right. and they're on government sides. And we have had to submit to several clients our telework plan, our alternate yeah. uh, work site plan. Yeah. Right. And so I see that happening, but that, that is largely for white collar jobs. Right. That doesn't change the, uh, the oil patch, it doesn't change construction, it doesn't change uh, these other jobs. So right. it is a little confusing. Um, I do applaud um, uh, the governor getting out so quickly in crisis communications. We had okay. three cases, yep. she has a press conference. Um, I thought that was really well done because in the period, as, as in that period between three cases being reported and hearing from the governor, um, you want to close that gap because that's where things get uncertain and people mm -hmm. get panicky and where rumors are. I thought that I thought that was very well done. Mm -hmm. um, one thing is, I found myself at the uh, Walmart Edgewood yesterday that I found quite concerning. Yeah, there's a run on a lot of things, bottled water, but also. Um, Obviously, people in the East Mountains are worried about their dogs, uh, and I'm sorry to say there is no duck jerky remaining. Uh, I got the last yeah, bag. Yeah. Right. You go, oh, you're bag. the one with the last bag. All right. I got the last bag. <laughs> Only one, though. I'm right. not hoarding. I'm not hoarding duck jerky for there my puppies. See, be neighborly with your duck jerky, as they say. Right. Um, the idea, I got to go back to telecommuting and who can and who sure. can't and who can stay safe, safer sure. than others. There are some distinctions forming here. You started to hit on this as well. I'm, I'm, my bigger concern is the economy more than anything else. If we shut things down for a couple of weeks, say if we get mm -hmm. a little bit worse here mm -hmm. compared to some other places that are, that are having people just stay inside for long periods right. of time, how do we get through that bit for our so local? It I mean, it depends on which part of the economy you're talking about. Okay. So, so one thing that I touched on earlier is sort of the service level right. uh, area of our economy. Um, we can, and I hope people will, look to what has worked in other environments. So for instance, in Italy, mm -hmm. uh, food delivery can happen from restaurants after six o'clock. I had a right. conversation this week with an Uber driver in, in Austin who was talking about, you know, I'm gonna sign up for Uber Eats because I think I'm not gonna have people in my car, but I'm gonna be able to bring them mm -hmm. um, food. And we talked about how potentially people might need um, to have medication or whatever brought to them as well. So I mean, I think, I think to the extent 
This isn't going to help everybody, but to the, to the extent that the gig economy, at least, is looking to how is it working in other places, how could we make it work here, um, that perhaps provides a little bit of support in that area. But, I mean, there comes a point at which you say, do I feel safe going to Sonic? Do I feel safe going to Starbucks? Do I feel safe going into Walmart, uh, Walgreens or Walmart? Um, some companies, some national companies, have already started talking about um, essentially income support for people who have to stay away because of coronavirus or who, who aren't going to be able to work because they just don't need as many people right. um, in the business at that particular time. That's I think right. that that's a really positive move. Mm -hmm. um, some businesses may decide they can't do that. And so that puts, um, that puts the burden back on the state right. um, to make decisions about how, how folks are going to be supported. That's right. Continuing our look back now at the evolution of thoughts and opinions on COVID-19 and the state's response over the last three-plus months, we're going to head back to the line now, a different line panel. This was from March 27th of this year, so a couple weeks after that first excerpt you heard. And this is really uh, when things started to ramp up in terms of um, the struggle that businesses were facing, when they could reopen, how they function in a pandemic state and public health orders, the stay-at-home order. So here again is host Gene Grant with a different line panel going back to March 27th. What's the best way here in New Mexico? Is the governor on the right track regardless of what the federal government wants to do? Are we on the right track here in your gut from everything you've seen from the governor so far? <laughs> There's just, there's been so much confusion, I think, out there. And unfortunately, a lot of confusion, even within the White House um, task force that's working on this. Um, I do think that uh, there's no reason to set arbitrary timelines. I think that causes more confusion for people. Obviously, we'd all like for this to be lifted by Easter. Um, and certainly, a lot of restaurant workers, people in the um, hospitality industry, a lot of folks in retail would love to get back to work. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you know, I don't, I don't know that we're, I agree with Dr. Fauci. We can't just uh, impose some sort of arbitrary timeline. Mm -hmm. We have to be um, prudent in this situation. I think the governor's on the right track as far as, um, you know, making sure people understand that, that this is a very serious issue and we all need to take um, precautions and, uh, and, and do what we can to stay safe. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is when you asked the question earlier about the gentleman who uh, passed away um, in Eddie County, I, I mean, there's so much confusion even around that because I had heard that he actually had declined yes. um, the coronavirus test at first, not that it wasn't available to him. You're quite um, right. But I'm hearing a lot of conflicting things too. And and people even in that area who I know also had heard different things that it had come from a doctor. And then the media said, actually, the doctor didn't have direct contact. So there's just a lot of confusion and that leads to a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing that we can do is just be patient you know, get through the day, do what we can, and really be kind to one another. Mm -hmm. Tom, let me ask you the same question roughly about what the president wants to do about getting the economy started again. Look, no one will disagree that, you know, the economy going to a very low place is not good for anybody, but death is probably a little bit worse than that if you really want to get down to it. But is there, in fact, a way in your mind, Tom Garrity, to have certain businesses sort of roll back in after a couple of weeks? Or is that just folly to think that we can kind of tiptoe into this thing? Well, you know, the, uh, the, the ordering really should be more focused on, you know, what is, what, how do we make sure that people get the tests that they need to get? How do we make sure we get the virus under control or to a manageable level of, uh, of eliminating, uh, you know, flattening the curve? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, once those items are addressed, then I think you can go back to saying, okay, well, what is the new normal kind of look like at that point. Um, you know, so, you know, I think that, you know, looking ahead, sure, you know, a lot of us want to be able to see business, uh, you know, get back on track and, you know, all of us address this recession head on. Mm -hmm. um, but really, you know, we have to make sure that it, we do it in a safe way. So to put, you know, businesses ahead right now, uh, while personally, I would like to see that. It's really not a move that would that appears anyway that would be you know conducive with flattening that curve of of infections and people seeking uh, admission into hospitals. We'll have much more on our look back at Covid nineteen and uh, the last several months uh, here on the show in just a little bit. We're going to take a short break. 
We'll talk about a couple of exciting things here at New Mexico PBS. First, we'll start with next Monday and Tuesday, July 6th and 7th, a special American experience, the National PBS Documentary Series, a two-night special all about uh, women's suffrage movement and the fight to pass and ratify the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. Just a fascinating history. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Not that long ago, really, but you may not be as familiar with the history and all the different techniques and strategies and methods that organizers had to use to get this goal accomplished. And again, it airs Monday and Tuesday, July 6th and 7th at 8 p.m. here on New Mexico PBS. This week, we hosted an online virtual screening of some of that American experience, and we also were joined by a panel of folks with host Megan Kamrick to talk about uh, the women's suffrage movement here in New Mexico, and that's a tie into a companion journalistic effort we're doing here, our own podcast, a short-run podcast called New Mexico and the Vote, which really looks at the unique history of how New Mexico achieved and ended up being the 32nd state to ratify the 19th Amendment. The first episode of that podcast is out as well as a preview episode. Again, it's called New Mexico and the Vote, and you can get that, subscribe that to that wherever you get your podcasts. Just head to uh, iTunes Podcast, Spotify, any of those big names and search for New Mexico and the Vote, and you will find it there. They're going to release new episodes on Tuesdays for the next three weeks as we delve into this topic even more, New Mexico, as is pretty typical in historical circles, was much different than the rest of the country. And really, in this case, the region. Uh, a lot of the states in the region uh, went after this from the state level. And there was an attempt to do that here in New Mexico when we became a state. And in our state constitution, that didn't happen. And so we really shifted towards uh, pushing for the national effort to get women the right to vote. And a lot of really interesting players in that, not surprisingly. Hispanics in New Mexico played a key role in uh, achieving this goal here in New Mexico. And host Megan Kamrick does a great job with this podcast. Again, we encourage you to go find it, subscribe, rate, review, share it with your friends. We're happy to bring it to you. We think it's a great history and one that you may not be super familiar with. So we wanted to now give you a taste of the American Experience show, as well as a taste of that panel discussion we held after that virtual screening. You can watch the full panel discussion, about an hour long, on our Facebook pages, either New Mexico in Focus or NMPBS. Just go there and you'll find an archived version of that. Just a fascinating conversation there, and we want to share some of it with you now. American experience. Women had been at this for decades. The movement was going nowhere. There are severe disagreements about tactics and strategy. Kerry Catt is a pragmatic politician. Alice Paul says, I'm going to try different things. We're going to blow this wide open. The fight over the right to vote has always been about power and who has it and who doesn't want to give it up. The conclusion of the vote on American experience. I wanted to do a quick round robin and get your initial reaction. I was struck yet again how forceful and profound this movement was, especially at this time in this moment of another uprising for rights. So I'll just, as I see you on here, a quick round robin, I'll start with Meredith. Yes, I think it is very timely that uh, we are revisiting a lot of the same issues that we did uh, we were looking at 100 years ago. And I think the intersection of racial injustice and gender oppression and uh, all the rest is coming to the fore because we are realizing more and more that only certain percentage of the population has a, you know, a real voice and we've got to broaden that so it's more representative. So, I mean, it's been going on since the founding of this country with the colonial founding of this country. And, you know, we're seeing it more and more. Um, and we've just got to break those, those uh, bonds that a lot of us are held by. What about you, Martha? Well, I was struck by the fact that nothing has changed in 100, 150 years in terms of what actually gets stuff done. 
and what it still is despite social media, despite all of the distractions is getting in the streets. And that is how the suffragists finally picketing the White House and being in the streets is finally what tipped the balance. And they did it all over the country. And look at what we're in today. I know most of you don't remember 1968, but I barely do. <laughs> so, uh, right. Being in the streets was what did it. You know, mm -hmm. for the progress we made then, stopping the Vietnam War, that was done in the streets. So I was struck by the fact that today, the same thing is happening as we speak. Pamela, what about you? No, as I looked at that uh, film, I was really struck by how long it actually took to get this amendment passed. It was 72 years. And I, you, I hadn't thought about it much in terms of time until I, watched this, until I watched this movie. But the other thing that really struck me is that once they hit a road in the bump in 1870, when we saw the, um, an amendment passed, the 15th Amendment passed, the divide that became and arose between black women and white women was really disheartening. Instead of getting closer together, I saw this pushing further apart. And I, and I hadn't realized how strong that was until I got a chance to see that on the film. I didn't realize how early it started till I watched it. What about you, Sylvia? Well, I, I thought the, the snippet of, of the film that we saw was really good in conveying the whole the whole trajectory of the suffrage movement in many ways. And not only that, how it brought in different voices. So one of the things that struck me is that they, they did talk about the women who were opposed to, uh, to suffrage. I almost said abortion, but I mean to suffrage. Uh, and, and the reasons those women had, and the reason that struck me is because when we were up at the state capitol in February to celebrate the uh, ratification of the, of the suffrage amendment in New Mexico, we had a table uh, for the Equal Rights Amendment. And a woman came up to us and, and started talking about what it is that we wanted to do and why. And, uh, and we, we, we talked with her for a little while. And then when we said, well, do you, want to, do you want to sign up so you can get more information from us? She says, no, no, I'm not interested. I'm not for the ERA. And then she walked away and she would not answer the why. And it's just that kind of, of thinking that I think many times uh, puts us in conflict with each other. Although I know that women in general have a, a whole panoply of, of ideas and of things that they need to get done that, that come across, you know, go across borders, across political parties and such. So, so how the women in the suffrage movement worked, even though they worked in parallel sometimes, Carrie Chapman Cat on one side, Alice Paul on the other, the black women through the uh, black women's uh, clubs uh, we're working for suffrage too. Is it Kalasa uh, for Native American uh, suffrage rights? So, uh, the, uh, oh, and uh, Mabel Pink Wally, the Chinese uh, young woman who uh, was an immigrant and yet she worked for suffrage. So even though we have different and sometimes parallel lanes, we're all pushing towards the same objective. And I think that really works in the end for our benefit. It'd be better if we work together, but if we all push you know, in the same direction, uh, even in, in parallel lanes, generally, I think we can accomplish what we need to do. Sylvia, actually, uh, it's interesting as we learn, I learned doing the podcast, you can hear in the first episode, the West was way ahead of the rest of the country in granting suffrage. Now, as we also find out, there's some really distasteful reasons <laughs> why that was true. And it had a lot to do with empire and white supremacy in getting white women out west. But anyway, New Mexico had a fairly different trajectory um, and Hispanic women were really involved here. They were actually quite key to, to making this happen. Um, Sylvia, who are a couple of the very famous, um, most important women here, Hispanic women? I think in terms of the Hispanic women, uh, certainly uh, uh, Adelina Otero Warren or Nina Otero Warren, and, uh, and uh, 
uh, Aurora Lucero, who happened to be cousins, actually. They were both related to Solomon Luna, who was a very powerful Republican leader in the, in the territorial uh, legislature. So those two women, I think, were very important, especially as of uh, 1914, which is when the Congressional Union came, came into town. That's um, Alice Paul's group. That's correct. Uh, mm -hmm. Otero Warren had worked in 1910 during the uh, Constitutional Convention to try to get suffrage in the Constitution. And all that uh, she and women in the club movement could get was uh, suffrage uh, in terms of being able to vote for, uh, for school boards and such. They couldn't get voting rights uh, for anything else, uh, but, they, but they were willing to settle for that at that point because they needed that they, need, they knew that they needed to push farther uh, in the future. But having one step in the door is better than having no, no foot in. All right, let's shift back to COVID-19 and our look back at how the last few months have sort of fallen out in terms of uh, the surfacing of COVID-19 in New Mexico, the response, the state public health orders, the stay-at-home orders, testing. There's a lot that goes into it, and we want to stick with that testing here right now for a minute. Back on May 8th, senior producer Matt Grubbs was able to talk to the secretary for the Department of Health in New Mexico, Kathleen Kunkel. And uh, it was recently announced that she is going to retire. Uh, she says she will stick through the pandemic and the outbreak here in New Mexico, but she has plans to retire. She's been one of the stalwart figures in the state response to this. And especially when it comes to testing, we have been super aggressive in testing here in New Mexico. And there were goals set out originally 5,000 tests a day, then 7,500 tests a day. Not always easy to reach for a lot of reasons. And Dr. Kunkel talks with Matt Grubbs about the state approach and why some of those challenges for daily testing results can be hard to achieve and what happens going forward in terms of testing for COVID-19. We operate at rapid lightning speed, in my, my opinion. You know, when I say we, I mean the Department of Health and the laboratories are, it, it is a lightning speed process. And so it, it isn't always in sync. And more specifically, uh, as we were talking about, Dr. Jennison was, was an outstanding partner and helped us work with laboratories, Tricor, the national labs, um, our state labs, to increase their capacity. And there is machinery, there are instruments is a better term. There are instruments around the state that um, can do COVID-19 testing, but they have to be upgraded, tested, validated. It's a lot of work. So that process was uh, happening. And we got to a place where the state of New Mexico got to where they could do approximately 5,000 a day. But that's assuming everything works perfectly on the instrument side. So you have to have reagents. You have to have a machine that doesn't break down. You have to have sufficient staff. So on any given day, there can be a gap there. Uh, that doesn't happen too often. I don't want to uh, make that the real reason, the only reason. But that has happened occasionally. Um, other labs have to be run for the state, respiratory panels are run on these same instruments and sometimes have to be run for people who have pneumonias and other types of infections. So we have that side of the, the lab capacity can fluctuate depending on their supplies, their staff and other demands on the instruments. But that is a minor, that, I really think that's minor. Okay. On the mm -hmm. other side, you have our uh, workforce testing capacity, the testing of the uh, people on the ground who can swab. And I get to be very concrete so that people don't confuse the processing of a, a specimen and the swabbing of a person. We tend to lump them together and call them testing, but it's, they're two different parts of a process. So we have, as we have expanded the lab's capacity to do 5,000 tests a day, I did not have the same um, success in increasing my workforce capacity on one end. So sometimes there was a, so half of the, more than half of the swabbing takes place by the public health division at various places around the state, completely under the control of the Department of Health. Our private partners, Presbyterian, Loveless, Christus St. Vincent, uh, Taos Hospital, Gerald Champion, those private partners also are uh, collecting kits and sending them out. So again, managing the workforce on that end 
can be challenging. And that was sometimes part of the problem was that there weren't, um, there weren't enough people out there collecting. I am working on that. I have, we will, we were, we're back in business. We're back up to 5,000. And then the third issue, which I believe the governor spoke to was that uh, we set up, we being the Department of Health again, set up sites in every county. I believe we say 60, but there's actually as many as 80 at any given time that are reported on the website and they are open at different times and different days. And the strategy when we set those up maybe four or five weeks ago was for people to come in and get tested. But that strategy is evolving. Fewer people are coming to those sites. They still need to be there in the event that someone needs in a remote area needs to be tested. They need to stay. But we have an evolving strategy where we're using our test teams to go to specific uh, high-risk populations and do testing. So that evolution, I think also uh, we saw a dip in our ability to uh, maximize our lab capacity. On those days when um, the state doesn't sort of hit that capacity, do you consider that sort of um, lost capacity, wasted day? I mean, how do you, how do you sort of categorize that and, and how do you look to sort of fill those gaps? That's painful. Um, I can't say, uh, it's a, it's a, I would say it's a big concern. I meet with the Department of Health testing team at 6.15 in the morning and again at 4.30 in the afternoon. We, we go over our plans for the day and then we meet again at the end and, and uh, it's, it's a target. I mean, I, I understand that um, life happens and we aren't always able to accomplish the tasks that we set out for in the morning. Our goal is to hit that every day. One thing when we don't, I have to know why. So I don't want to characterize it as a failure. It is painful. And, you know, we just, we have to keep doing better for the, for the state. We have to do better. And I know that this team that is on the ground, they are doing the best they can. We shift gears rapidly in the morning. If I get notice from the Division of Epidemiology that there's a positive in a nursing home, that changes the day. So then a certain team has to go to that nursing home and test everybody. And we may not get to the drive-through site that we thought we were gonna to get to. So I think the challenge to me is to increase the workforce so that we always hit that. And as I said, the governor now has a much higher goal. So we will have to increase the workforce to do the type of collection to maximize. But yeah, it, it, it feels bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's painful when we don't hit that. We worked hard to, to get there, to make sure we could do it. And so not, not benefiting from that is, uh, is yeah, problematic. Sure. Uh, the governor's goal right now, what is that? 7,500 is the new goal. Okay. Uh, so, um, sorry ahead. to interrupt. Are most of those, um, uh, the, the analysis part of the, the testing equation that you talked about, the, the back end, are most of those labs in state or are there some out of state labs helping? Well, right now our primary partner is Tricor okay. and Tricor and State Scientific Lab do the bulk of it. There's always been out of state labs that do testing that is reported to the Department of Health. LabCorp is utilized uh, heavily by the Navajo Nation. Quest uh, reports there are, uh, there are a number of out of state labs. Those are the biggest, Quest, LabCorp and, uh, and then our two labs. And, now that we have some of the uh, point of care, point rapid testing, they also report directly to um, ERD and the Department of Health contracted with uh, National Jewish in Denver to extend the ability of uh, state scientific lab, more or less. We consider it a, an extension of their capacity, but uh, that, that's basically the major uh, contributors to our testing capacity. Okay. Okay. And that's ERD. Is, is that emergency response division or? Yes. In the okay. department of health and epidemiology. Sure. Um, and I, I appreciate you sort of walking us through what happens when um, in a long-term care facility, there are positive detections. I would imagine that has been um, one of the biggest challenges that you face. Uh, it's it certainly when we see the numbers updated every afternoon, you know, you can just about count on the majority, if not the vast majority being of the deaths, at least being in long-term care facilities. Um, 
Is the goal once you get a positive test in a long-term care facility to test everyone? Yes, that is our strategy. We have two strategies. The testing team does one positive. There's still an opportunity to get in there and make a difference. Although, as I said, once it's in a nursing home, it's extremely difficult to arrest. So the goal is to keep it out. The goal is to uh, review every day as DHI does. The Division of Health Improvement is a part of the Department of Health. They're responsible for licensing nursing homes and they have surveyors and all the surveyors are assigned to specific nursing homes. They do daily checks, they do video monitoring, they look for masking, gloving, infection control, um, taking temperatures before the staff comes in. What we learned was that uh, this is more anecdotal than something I can publish, but there are asymptomatic staff in nursing homes that have been unfortunately probably uh, responsible for bringing it in. That's no one's fault. They didn't know they were sick. So the gloving and the infection control techniques are incredibly important. So when we get one positive, we are there, we test everybody. Our goal is to continue testing until they don't have any more. If there's more than one positive, and when it, I think we have six or seven nursing homes that have more than 10 positives. We simply have to uh, assist them in managing that. So we have two strategies and we test them all. Okay. Every um, nursing home was provided, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there are 71 nursing homes. They've all were provided with kits two weeks ago, roughly, and told start surveying your population. So if you have no positives, then do 15% of your population and they are all compliant with that. But once we have a positive, then the DOH testing team goes in to support also Department of Aging and Long-Term Services. Secretary Hotram has staff with the ombudsman. She comes in and then it's a joint effort with the Division of Health Improvement, the testing team, uh, experts. I have a physician on that team and aging. We are all in the nursing home trying to find ways to isolate, improve infection control, provide whatever resources we can. Sure. Uh, that sort of gets us into this next phase of, of what New Mexico is going to be going through as people look to return to work. Um, what is your desire in terms of who you want tested and how often um, when people start coming back to places like the University of New Mexico or the labs, these big, large employers, the government, that sort of thing? Who do you want tested and how often? You know, we don't have a firm strategy for that yet. I think this is a part of the medical assistant uh, advisory team's recommendations to the governor about strategizing tiered returns. So I don't have a strict answer for you yet or a definite answer, but those entities are still working. All the government entities, they're still out there. Uh, UNM is still working, not the, not the school necessarily, but certainly the hospital. So we do, we have rapid testing for first responders and essential personnel, we have to be able to turn around their testing quickly. But, um, and we do that now. But in terms of who will be tested and how they'll be tested, what role will the serological testing take in terms of employment, we we're still debating that and I don't have, a, I don't have a, a, a clear response yet. Sure, and the serological, that's the antibody testing? Correct, blood testing, as opposed to the nasal swabage, which is what we're using to diagnose. Sure. Uh, the difference being whether you have it or have had it, is that? Yes. So if you do a blood test, the serological test will tell you if you have the antibodies, which says that you did have it. Does it provide immunity? We don't really know. So is that going to be criteria for return to work? Again, we don't really know. There is a role for it, for sure, though, and the, and the state will be engaging in serological testing because we may wanna know around the state, where do we see large amounts? Where, where do we see pockets? How can we use that effectively? And there's a, a team of people studying that, providing recommendations to the governor as we move along. And there will be a role for it, but there's always gonna be a role for viral testing or the nasal swabs as well, because that tells you if you actively have the infection and we still need to do that. So how we do that and how much we do is still under debate or under okay. discussion. Sure. We just have a few seconds left, but do you have a, a goal or a timeline for deciding on sort of the, the testing recommendations for return to work? I think we're in the middle of that timeline right now. Uh, this, there's, as I said, teams of people working on this. There's a, the medical advisory team, the recovery uh, council that the governor established and the Department of Health are all providing input. But 
I think those decisions to the best of our knowledge are being, you know, we're using the best information we have right now as the state tries to open up their, uh, you know, loosen the restrictions as we did and continue to move forward. But it's, uh, I think we need some data. I think that we wanna see how it goes. I, I don't know who doesn't have a heightened concern about more people out in public. And are we gonna see a spike in, in positives? Or, or can we maintain? So we have to keep the, we have to keep it flat. If we start seeing a spike, then I think all of our strategies have to be re-examined. I don't think we have enough data yet to say. Okay, Secretary, we thank you so much for your time and we hope you stay healthy. It was a pleasure, you too, thank you. All right, we handed this at the top of the show. A lot of the concern around COVID-19 cases in New Mexico right now is really focused not on what we're doing here in New Mexico, but what's happening around New Mexico and surrounding states. Arizona is really in a crisis situation in their hospital, as well as in Texas and Colorado to a lesser extent. And so a lot of the focus has shifted uh, during the last several months to those border communities. And right now we want to focus a little bit on Las Cruces and more specifically El Paso, just across the border from Las Cruces. Back in May, on May 22nd actually, Laura Pascas, our correspondent, was able to catch up with a couple of journalists in the El Paso area to talk about what was happening in terms of testing and cases and the outbreak and responses there in the El Paso community. This is part of what Laura's been doing for us throughout the pandemic, checking in with journalists to see about the communities they cover and how COVID-19 is affecting those communities. And again, another interesting thing El Paso about El Paso is, of course, the migrant detention facilities that are in that area. And so you're going to hear Laura not only talk about what's happening in El Paso, but also those detention facilities. Really interesting, informative interview here. And let's turn it over to Laura Pascas. Bob, you've reported relentlessly on the detention of men, women, and children along the U.S.-Mexico border. What do we know about what's happening with the spread of the virus and treatment of people who might have the virus within these crowded detention facilities? Well, the, the, certainly the biggest explosion in this region is at the Otero County Processing Center down in, in Chaparral. Uh, where the most recent count uh, is, uh, I think, 58 detainees at the ICE facility. Now, of course, that's a multi-purpose facility. So you also have another 30-some inmates who are detained by the U.S. Marshal Service there that have also tested positive, plus 21 uh, New Mexico Corrections Department detainees. So you have more than 100 uh, cases uh, uh, being reported there. The bulk of them are in the ICE facility, though, where um, you have these uh, 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 asylum seekers and, and, and other uh, immigrants who've been detained. Uh, uh, we're, we're hearing the place holds about a thousand or can hold a thousand people. We've been consistently hearing that the numbers have been staying up around 700. By contrast, uh, the El Paso Processing Center, which is an ICE run facility rather than a private run facility that, that's here in El Paso, also has a capacity of about a thousand, but they've decreased their population to about 300. And as a result, they've only had 12 cases of, of, of COVID-19. Uh, so there, there's a definite disparity there uh, with, with the facility in, in New Mexico. And we're also starting to see uh, some other cases popping up at, at Torrance uh, and at Cibola in, in New Mexico, but nowhere near the numbers we're seeing uh, at the Otero County Processing Center. Do you have a sense of what conditions are like inside these facilities? Are they able to be isolating people or treating people? So from what we're hearing from attorneys of people who are detained there, if you test positive, you're basically put in solitary confinement. Uh, uh, and that raises some other issues too, that the ICE will refer to it as medical isolation. Uh, but you know, putting uh, a person into solitary confinement for a 14-day period runs right up against the 15-day mark that the UN uh, uh, declares as a form of torture when you place somebody in in solitary confinement. So they're, they're isolating uh, detainees who test positive by themselves in these, these solitary cells. Although that may not be possible as these case numbers continue to grow, they may have to, I'm sure they are adapting. Otherwise, if you've been exposed to a fellow detainee who, who tests positive and you haven't been tested yet, 
they'll they'll uh, put you in what they call a cohort. Uh, and so they put, uh, this is a basically a dormitory style setting uh, where you have a series of bunk beds that are, that are still fairly closely packed together. Um, and that's one of the reasons you've seen uh, the widespread um, uh, eruption of these, these uh, outbreaks, not just in the El Paso, New Mexico area, but all across the country. Uh, these are very difficult places to establish social distancing in. Uh, just something as simple as making a phone call to your lawyer you're using a phone that somebody else had used minutes earlier. And until recently, they hadn't been doing a very good job of, of sterilizing those phones and things like that. So these, these are conditions um, like any other detention facility that are just ripe for the spread uh, of any infectious disease. Right. Lauren, you've been asking a really important question. Customs and Border Patrol agents interact with hundreds of people on a daily basis and are not required to be wearing PPE. What have you learned in the last week or so about that? Well, you know, I initially approached that story wondering if um, if the federal agencies at the border had the right access to personal protective equipment. And it turns out they do. Their union representative says they do. They have access to everything, um, even some of the equipment that, you know, that nurses have been clamoring for. Um, but without a doubt, they're not using it regularly. I've been crossing the border for stories on a fairly regular basis over the past three or four weeks. And uh, while you'll sometimes see uh, CBP officers at the customs houses and at the kiosks um, for passenger vehicles wearing an N95 mask, uh, a lot of times you won't see them wearing it at all. And, you know, it, it's not entirely clear why. I think that there's some discomfort involved. One of the officers told me he had an N95 mask strapped to his uh, belt not on his face. And I said, you know, why aren't you wearing it? And he said, you know, well, we have to get, we have to get, you know, down on the ground and look under cars and it's hot. And, you know, I think he was sort of uncomfortable. Um, at the same time for the traveling public, I think it's really worrisome. Um, I was placed into a secondary inspection on a couple of occasions. There's a lot less traffic and for a variety of reasons, they like to check vehicles a second time. And that requires pulling through, um, pulling through, turning off your car and having officers um, really sort of pro, you know, probe and, and search the vehicle. I have a five-year-old daughter, she was in the back and the officers who were at my window and checking my car weren't wearing face masks. Um, it is a recommendation by the agency, it is not mandatory. Um, so there's not really anyone enforcing that. Right, Lauren, you also reported recently about how border towns in Mexico are being affected. People are losing their jobs, but in addition to that, the Mexican peso has crashed and food prices have spiked. How are people surviving right now? Um, you know, it's, it's really pins and needles in Juarez right now. Um, the city's 300,000 maquila workers are the workers who work in the assembly plants that in our region largely feed the automotive industry in the U.S. are really caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, many want to go back to work. Many who were sent home do want to go back to work because they're only being paid a fraction of their salary. In some cases, just 40% that might amount to 30 or $40 per week, which in a border city is absolutely not enough to live on, especially with a family. Um, at the same time, the maquilas have been centers of these outbreaks. Uh, Lear Corp, which um, makes automotive parts for U.S. auto manufacturers, has been probably the most transparent of the big corporations that have assembly plants in Juarez, and they haven't given an exact number of maquila workers who have died. Um, the city has said it's 17, but that update came from several weeks ago. Um, but they did see a big outbreak at one of their plants, and several workers have died. So uh, you know, the corporations are trying to get sanitary uh, measures in place, new protocol, perhaps new design for the way production is laid out. Um, and many are starting to go back to work this week, uh, next week, and then starting June 1st. Uh, but it's a huge risk. Some of these plants have thousands of workers in a single facility. So, Bob, Texas is moving ahead far more aggressively than our state is in terms of reopening. How do you see that affecting, potentially affecting New Mexico? 
Uh, first of all, it's important to note that uh, El Paso was given an exception this week, uh, as was Amarillo, which is, is another area where a lot of New Mexicans might, might go through, uh, because the governor did exempt some areas that are, that are still seeing ongoing problems. Uh, so we'll see uh, next week. But you know, as of um, uh, uh, this Friday, uh, Las Cruces and El Paso will generally be pretty similar as far as uh, uh, openness goes. Uh, that could change again next week as El Paso expands more. Um, but there's there's still some 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 real concerns when you look at the the data for for Doniana County. Uh, the highest infection rates are tend to be in the areas closest to El Paso um, because places like Santa Teresa and Sunland Park really have a lot more in common uh, with El Paso than they do with say Las Cruces, and so. People work here. They 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 tend to business here. So uh, that is one of the challenges of this region that we live in. You know, Lauren talked about what's going on in, in Maquiladoras. So we're really in a in a tri-state, um, multinational region here, and that illustrates the difficulties of adopting policies to control the the, the spread of of this disease. So M Michelle Lujan Grisham can set some edicts in Santa Fe for how Sunland Park and Santa Teresa are going to work. But if Greg Abbott in Austin sets looser restrictions, uh, uh, it really will undermine whatever edicts uh, she, she puts out. So we, you know, we're, we're, we are still seeing increases in cases uh, here in El Paso, some really frightening hospitalization numbers. I suspect that's more related to what happened here on Mother's Day when we had a pretty big breakdown uh, uh, in social distancing compliance. Uh, uh, so it's a little too early to, to say that the reopening of the economy is related to any of these cases, but it's something that bears watching. Right. Well, thank you both so much. I appreciate your incredible reporting, and I'm really glad we were able to get you on the show this week. Stay safe, and thank you so much. You be safe, too. Thanks thank you, much. Laura. Bye. In the early days of the pandemic here in New Mexico, a lot of the focus was on the Navajo Nation, which had a high number of, of cases, especially per capita, uh, and those communities that uh, have lots of Na Navajo residents, largely McKinley County, San Juan County, the cases were skyrocketing on a daily basis, and they are still dealing with it, of course, to this day, but luckily they seem to be through the worst of it. But still lots of concerns remaining. And so Laura Paskus again wanted to check in with a journalist covering the Navajo Nation. We're going to bring that to you now as well as one of the great stories to come out of COVID-19 so far. She was able to talk to a gentleman who has fully recovered from COVID-19 after being diagnosed. His story is a crazy one about testing negative, then positive, and his fight to overcome COVID-19 and his advice to other folks, especially members of the Navajo Nation, who again are hit especially hard by the COVID-19 outbreak. Here again, Laura Paskus. Louis, Joe, and Sunny Klotchis, Jilligi, thank you so much for joining us this week on New Mexico in Focus. Thank, thank you for having me. Lewis, you live on the Arizona side of the reservation where an area that's been hit hard by COVID-19, um, you tested positive in April. Take us back to your first experience um, being tested positive. Um, the first experience was um, two days, three days prior of being uh, tested. I was uh, feeling symptoms of uh, the sore throat and the tiredness I was actually kind of thinking I'm sleeping more than usual and sleeping during the day, which is not me. And um, it just started going to um, the body aches and the headaches. And that's when I decided to go in when uh, we were taking our walk and I almost faded and fell. So my wife decided to take me into the ER. So it was quite an experience. I, was, I, I tried being in denial about it, saying that it's going to be okay. It's, it's not what what you think it is, but it, it actually was. And you had a painful physical experience. You've been out of work and you've also tested again to be able to go back to work. Is that right? How were people around you reacting to um, you having been tested positive? Pretty much can't go anywhere. Um, 
I I was the only person at the time to make supply runs. And of course, with uh, Bash is the only store here and I work over there too. I was denied access in there, but which I understand, you know, it's for the safety of um, everybody that works there and for the customers there. So they denied me access, but um, you, you get treated differently, uh, especially when everybody knows you. But other than that, I mean, everybody comes around and they've been also supportive with us and the kids. But um, the second round of testings that I did was uh, the first one came back negative, which I was very excited. And a week later, the second one came back uh, positive, which kind of shook my world again. But um, I'm hoping for the best for this next coming round of testings. And how are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Um, I no, no symptoms whatsoever, but when we last talked, um, I was kind of fearing about the uh, sore throat and the, um, the headache, but that was only that one evening. But other than that, I'm feeling great. Um, I, I really don't know why I tested positive when I had no symptoms and I, I still feel fine right now. And Sunny, you are currently studying and teaching here in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico, but you're a longtime journalist covering the Navajo Nation. Um, and you know the Shiprock, New Mexico communities well, being familiar with that area. Um, the Navajo health departments are talking and reporting about um, that Shiprock Gallup area being hard hit now. What are you seeing is most concerning in that area, Sunny? I think that um, I just did some reporting there, I think about just over a week ago, which really changed my perspective on doing in-person reporting, but that's another story. But in terms of what I've seen, I think that um, people are a little unsure, I think, of what to do or how to deal with what's happening still. I mean, I was there during the lockdown and it seemed that people were adhering to, to the lockdown and the, the rules that are connected to that, but there were still, there was still traffic um, and you hear about people still visiting and still not taking things seriously outside of that. So I think that we're still in, they're still in this kind of phase of, of learning, you know, of really, accepting even what's happening and how this is affecting people. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've been hearing and seeing is that maybe a lack of education in terms of how does the virus work exactly? How do people get it? Um, you know, you hear a lot of, oh, wash your hands or social distance, but I think especially with older people, um, there's this lack of knowledge in terms of exactly how do you get this? How do people get this? So that's kind of what I'm seeing in that area. And do you feel like those New Mexico communities get as much attention as other communities on the Navajo Nation? I think right now there's a feeling that they aren't. There is a feeling that they aren't because, um, you know, I'm fairly active on social media as well. So there are things that I hear about from sources and just from, you know, within my own community. I mean, I don't, I, my parents live not too far from Shiprock. So I'm with kind of within that when I go and go back and see them. And there is a feeling of being forgotten, I think. And, and I feel like that's just not now, but it's kind of a known thing that, you know, we are forgotten sometimes on the New Mexico side of the reservation, especially near the Eastern Agency. And as you get farther away from the reservation and kind of the middle of it, there's that feeling of, well, when are we going to get what we need? And I know in response to that, places like Shiprock are putting together their own relief organizations and finding ways to respond in their own way because they're used to that. They're used to kind of being forgotten sometimes. And with your reporting, um, you had a recent piece that was in the New York Times talking about why the spread is so rapid on the Navajo. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of mainstream news reports talking about infrastructure and housing needs and water, but can you talk about what your piece really, when it comes to culture and the way of life of Navajo people? Yeah, I think with that piece, um, you know, when they when they approached me about writing something, I I had to really think about what was the core of of why things were spreading. And the biggest thing I could think of is my own actions. You know, what do what do I do? What does my family do? How are they acting? And I could see that there was it was really hard to imagine being separate from each other. It was hard for say my mom, for instance, to 
stay away from her brother to make sure that he has what he needs. And so even now we're, we're still finding that difficult. I'm finding that difficult. Um, and so the, the pinnacle of that piece of that column was just to show that, yes, it is hard, but it's, but it's the, the hardest, how do I say this? It is hard, but usually the answers for what we need to do are in those hard things. And what's hard is staying apart and not being together. And that was, that's the, exactly the answer for our way of, of curving this is to do what's hardest for us to do. And that's to not be together. So. And Lewis, um, for you, what's your next step? I'm hoping for a negative on this test because um, <clears throat> I am going to be donating my blood and hopefully um, it will help out. And um, my inspiration for that was uh, my little cousin brother was admitted to the ICU in Phoenix and he had the virus, but he's recovering right now and he's doing great. But he was my inspiration for this. Well, that's my plan um, for that and return back to work and hopefully, hopefully we'll adjust to this new normal. And what's your message, Lewis, for people, the Navajo people, um, as you're a person who has been through this personally and it impacted you personally, what is your message to the Navajo Nation? Listen, don't, don't be stubborn. Listen to the first responders. Listen to our Navajo Nation president. And please stay home and follow the curfew. And... Like Sunny said, the hardest thing is staying away from family, and that is really hard. Try to resist that and just listen to your first responders and thank your first responders, the nurses, the doctors, the officers, and the grocery the grocery stores, the retail members. Please thank them. And that's all I have to say is just listen to them. And Sunny. What is next to in your report? There are a lot of stories to cover on the Navajo Nation. What's your next story? Well, I have um, I have a project I'm working on right now. It's actually a, a year-long project that has to do with um, the pandemic on the reservation with Searchlight New Mexico, an investigative journalism team out of Santa Fe. And I've got, I've, I still contribute to the Navajo Times when I have the chance, but I'm trying to figure out the finish the semester out. I have grades to do for my students and, you know, trying to finish that part of my life so I can dive back into reporting full time and, and help essentially where I'm needed. Um, that's just kind of how I look at it. I'm always going to be a, a lifelong storyteller. And I think that there's little that we can do from afar because we have to stay away. Um, but I feel like this is the most that I can do is continue to tell people's stories and whatever angle that might be and whoever's story that might be and wherever it might be near or off the reservation for um, to, to be able to share what are the experiences that are happening and hopefully use those as messages to continue to help fight this virus in our nation. Well, Sunny and Lewis, I wanna thank you for joining us this week virtually on New Mexico in Focus here on New Mexico PBS. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, that's it for the show this week. We hope you have enjoyed this sort of look back at COVID-19 in New Mexico to date. Again, really interesting. We were really interested ourselves to go back and look and to see how far we've come, how things have changed and how far we still have to go to get through this pandemic here in New Mexico. It's going to be a really interesting couple of weeks. We hope the cases can go down, the deaths, of course, can go down, and that um, we can move forward in New Mexico in a way of healing, in a way of reopening the economy, which is a struggle for business owners, we know. But there's a lot that will take place in the next couple of weeks that's going to decide whether we're able to continue to move forward or if we actually end up having to take steps backward into closing more things and more of the stay-at-home order that we had at the beginning of this. So keep it here for updates on that. Um, up ahead next week, we're also going to be talking about some other COVID-19-related issues, evictions. We've hit on this before in fa on Facebook Live. On Wednesday, we're going to delve into that again. Um, this is becoming a, a really tough situation as the moratorium on evictions 
is still in place but is nearing its end, and there's no real indication of what will happen moving forward. You might remember evictions can still happen, but there's a moratorium on them actually taking place. So when that moratorium runs out, there are a lot of folks who've been in tough situations who are going to find themselves without a home. And so our producer, Kathy Wimmer, is going to sit down with Serge Martinez of the UNM Law School again. Serge has done a ton of work in this area, and we're going to update that situation and find out what happens next for those folks. And on Tuesday, we encourage you to tune in as we sit down with the head of the teachers union here in New Mexico to look at the plans for school here, which is now, wow, it's amazing to think, but only about a month away. Talking about a hybrid model of online and in-person, a lot of um, a lot of concern I know from lots of different parties, whether it be parents, teachers, other staff at the schools, students, of course. Uh, it's a tough situation and a tough nut to crack. Everybody wants these kids to have the best educational uh, opportunity possible, and online is not that. But safety is also of the utmost importance right now. State has a plan they put forward, and everyone acknowledges that that may have to change depending on how things go, but it will be a really interesting discussion to see uh, from the union perspective what this all means in going back to school. So a lot coming up for you next week, but we want to leave you tonight with some final thoughts from Gene Grant on this holiday weekend. Again, from all of us here, we hope you have a safe and a healthy holiday weekend, and we will see you again next week. Hey, show of hands if you're planning a low-key July 4th weekend like me. I already have a couple of invites for get-togethers, but that's not happening. I don't like the numbers coming out of Bernalillo County for new COVID cases, and for me, passing on the 4th is not a terribly huge sacrifice. Which brings me to masks. This may be the weekend to give it a go. Why? How we come out of this holiday weekend will determine if we can open schools safely in August, and maybe even more importantly, Keeping the number of infections coming out of July 4th down will avoid the economic nightmare of a second shutdown. It's truly that important. President Trump, Vice President Pence, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and a lot of politicos now support the use of masks for that very reason. Let's all get in on the game and protect each other as New Mexicans this weekend because as more and more visitors come to our state, our use of masks is the best defense we have. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. Have a safe holiday weekend, and we'll see you again next week in focus.